Uh, we are in Acts 20. Originally, was going to do something else, um, but uh, we looked at the story of Eutychus falling asleep and being raised from the dead, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we've renamed Eutychus uh, John Irwin here. He told me he fell asleep this morning. This is why. Do not let John out publicly without Lisa, right? I, I, we can, all those in favor say aye. No. Aye. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are funny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll, I'll second it. Um, but, um, uh, but Acts 20 is, is full of a lot of stuff that uh, I didn't want us to, to just leave it behind. Um, and we'll be in Acts for most of next week. We will be also next Friday be in the book Philemon. So just to give you a heads up on our reading for, for next week. Acts chapter 20, we want to read verses 17 to 38. And with that, if you'll stand with me, we'll read uh, Paul's final a conversation with the Ephesians. As far as I know, no one fell asleep during this time. Verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable in teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And, from, and now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions awaits me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to God, commend you to God to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified." I covet no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. And all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we always ask you would open our hearts, we would receive your word, our mind to understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed, our mouth we would speak the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. Let that be so, but it requires your spirit and your work in our lives. Would you be so kind this evening and forevermore? May I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. I've, I mentioned this past Wednesday, but uh, I have a real fascination with final words or final messages or, or something like that, final letters or final books, right? I, I, just, I find the subject 
just just uh, an intriguing one uh, when you look back into history. I, I shared with you the book, the, the, the last lecture uh, this past Wednesday, uh, to, to introduce Paul's final lecture there uh, with, with Eutychus. And we have something similar going on here. I just find the subject interesting because if, if you know this is the last time you're going to see someone, uh, or the last time they're going to read something from you or, or hear from you. I just find it fascinating. What, what is it that people turn to? What, what are the sort of subjects do they lean into to say that, that my whole ministry, I want you to see this. Or my whole lives, I want you to remember this. I just find the, the subject quite fascinating. I came across the story years ago that whenever John MacArthur's father died, who himself was a pastor and had a radio ministry and books and all that sort of stuff, that uh, everyone knew that his time was, was drawing near and yet his, 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 uh, John MacArthur went up to his dad and said, Dad, is there, is there something you want to do, right? And he says, I, I want to preach again, right? In fact, I've already prepared the sermon, right? And, and everyone knew he, there's no way we could get him to a pulpit to stand up and just deliver it fire and brimstone and everything else. And so he, John found his, his dad's sermon, and it was on heaven. And so at his father's own funeral, he stood up and read from his own father's sermon, uh, and shared with the congregation. What was it that dad was looking forward to uh, in his final days? I just, I just find that, that stuff sort of fa- fascinating. Here we get sort of insight with Paul, right? We can say the same thing with 2 Timothy, the last uh, canonical um, uh, 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 writings of Paul. But here, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians for the very last time. What, what is it that he, he really wants to share with them? In fact, we need to be specific here. He is drawing to him... Uh, the elders of the Ephesian church. Now, I suspect there's more than just the elders, but at the very least, the elders are there. And uh, right there, we use the biblical word that we Baptists have no idea what it means. Think about it. The word elders is not a Baptist word. When was the last time you were in the Baptist church? You'll find some now. We'll talk about it here in a second. When was the last time you were in a traditional Baptist church? Southern Baptist, Independent Baptist, American Baptist, Missionary Baptist, Northern Baptist, Western Baptist, uh, they ain't from around here, Baptist. Whatever Baptist you want to find, how often do you hear the word elders? When John Piper came to Southern Seminary, he was talking about how in church leadership, everything runs slow. It's, it's like working for the government or the NCAA, I guess. But, but if, if you want to institute change, it's going to take a lot of time. He said, for 14 years, it took me 14 years to convince my Baptistic church the word elders is not a Presbyterian word. I love that line. I will always remember that from, from Johnny Pipe. Uh, because I think he's, he's on it's a good illustration of what he's trying to say, but he's really on to something that we associate the word elders with the Presbyterians, bishops with the Episcopalians, and, and we could give other examples, right? But when you read the Bible, we see these words off the page, and we're thinking, we never use this word in my church tradition. For example, uh, actually, I, I want to give you uh, four biblical offices mentioned in the New Testament. I want you to ask yourself, self, why don't we have these in our church, okay? First one is overseers. You ever heard of someone called an overseer at East Frankfurt Baptist Church? I've written the history, at least the first part. And I can barely I say unto thee, it ain't in the records, right? I've read all the records up to 9-11. It ain't there. So you get in uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1, this uh, ESV, unless it says otherwise, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So, who among you wants to be the overseer? Nomination committee? Get on it, right? Right? Why, why, why do we have this? In the Bible? Don't you believe the Bible? 
Then why don't we have it? Huh? Hmm? Hmm? Right? Let's try another one. Let's try elders, right? We mentioned this. Here it is in Acts chapter 20. We can also point uh, to Acts 14 to give you another example. This is, this is important because we talked about Lystra, my favorite story in Acts. Remember, what does Paul do after he wakes up from nearly being stoned to death? He wakes up, stumbles back into the city uh, as he does in, in Derby following that, and he appoints elders. Nomination committee, where you at? Right? We, we got to start appointing elders. Where is this office? It's in the Bible, ain't it? I thought we believe the Bible. Where are our elders? And by elders, it don't mean the elderly, right? Now, now there may be some places where that is the application of, and that's debatable. The one that comes to mind is 3 John to the, uh, uh, the uh, elder John, right? Or to the elder one. But, but that could be the office. He has the office of being an elder. We can debate that uh, over hot chocolate another day. But what about elders? Or what about bishops? Bishop, right? When I think of bishop, I think of the bishop, T.D. Jakes, right? Not a fan of his theology, among other things, but I think of bishop as it comes to mind. Bishop T.D., he comes from a, a more Pentecostal, charismatic tradition. Actually, one is Pentecostal, hence the heresy part. But here it is from the King James. You know it must be of, of God. Paul and Timothy, I'm going to do the ESV uh, the version there. The servants of Jesus Christ, all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Oh, deacons, we know what those are. Where's the deacons at? Well, we have the office of, de- of bishop. Right? You believe the Bible? Let's do one more. What about pastors? Right? Pastors. Let me read to you from the uh, Net Bible, probably my favorite translation. He himself, this is Ephesians 4, gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Now, I won't address the apostles and prophets and all that sort of stuff, but just for our sake, he gave some to be pastors. So if I'm reading the Bible right, we should have four different offices. It should be overseers, elders, bishops, pastors, and deacons, so five, right? Why don't we have these? If we have anything, it would be pastor and deacon. We have two. Bible mentions five. Well, what do we do with this? Well, I am not going to answer all those questions, but let's just at least start thinking about some of this biblically, because this, this, this Acts 20 is important for us to develop a theology of the local church. It's, it's part of the description of what Paul says here, but, but it's consistent with everything else we see in the New Testament. So this is an important passage in that, in, in as regards to church government. One of the things we need to note is the New Testament often utilizes numerous words for the same office. We, we, we do this all the time, right? If, if uh, you, you may have a, a job or a, a former place of employment where uh, you had an official title that went on your business card, but everyone said you did something else, right? Right? I mean, uh, and, you know, the one on your business card is probably the politically correct title, right? The one that sounds really important. I, whenever I worked in the music department at Family Christian Stores, I called myself the music manager because I had the word manager in there. What I was was a sales associate that was in charge of the music department, right? I, w- I, was, I was paid like everyone else, essentially, okay? But I liked the phrase music manager. Multiple titles for really the same office. So we can take these, these four offices and we can say biblically these are essentially describing the same office. And we can prove that biblically. In fact, we can prove that uh, in two ways. One, you'll notice when we went and looked at these, these uh, words, I utilized three different translations. The ESV will use the terms overseer and elders the most. Uh, the King James really likes the word bishop. 
And other translation will use the word shepherd or pastor. So if we were to look at Ephesians uh, uh, 4 again, my preferred translation would say uh, he gave some as shepherd-teachers. Because actually what Paul is doing is he is combining uh, those two words. That is, the function of the shepherd is, in this context, that to teach. And you can look in the Greek and see that. In English, you can see a little bit, some as, as, as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. And then it says, some as pastors, teachers. There is no some as. So they're not two different offices. Uh, but that's, that's, that's free. That's my seminary education there, and I had to use it at some point. And the reason, but, but we believe that these offices are essentially synonyms for the same office. One of the reasons we believe that is because of Acts chapter 20. Now, remember, in verse uh, 17, Paul brings together the elders, right? That's the word that is being used there. The Greek word is presbyteros, where we get the word presbyterian or the, or the presbytery, right? So in the Presbyterian church, they are elder-led, and they are also hierarchical. So you have the elders of that local church. They are a, a ruling authority, but above them is another group of elders, and above them, and so on and so forth. So they're, so they're top-down like the Catholic church, but they don't have a single elder at the top, right? Whereas in the Catholic church, they have a single bishop, the bishop of Rome at the top. It's not the way Presbyterians work, and they use this word. In verse 28, you'll see two different words describing the same office. ESV, we use the word overseers. It is the word episkopos, where we get the Episcopal Church. Or, in the King James, the episkopos is translated bishop. It's not translated that in ESV or in others. But you can understand why the King James translators would do bishop, because the Anglican Church has bishops. They don't have elders. Okay? They're going to use the word bishops. And in verse 28, you'll see there, it uses a Greek word meaning pastor. ESV uh, will describe it as a shepherd. You use the metaphor shepherd, the flock, right? And also the word for shepherd or pastor is there as well. So you notice there, Paul is talking to the same people, but he gives them three different titles, right? Much in the same way, I have a mother-in-law who sometimes I refer to as my nemesis, right? You know, I'm normally only kidding. But uh, you have three titles for the same office. So that is a long way to say that biblically there are two offices. One is that of elders, plural. The other is that of deacons, plural. And, and so what we've done in the Baptist tradition, because we don't want to sound Presbyterian or Methodist or some of the others, is we've used the word pastors and deacons. But both have distinct roles within the local church, and we will have to leave it there and save the rest for, for a later time. But here it is, Paul speaking to the elders, Baptist, to the pastors of the Ephesian church, if that helps in any way. Uh, we'll call them bishops just to throw you off. How about that, right? It, it throws you off, doesn't it? The word bishop, right? But uh, um, nevertheless, let's, let's look at the text. Here, Paul has given us his final words to them. We start with Paul's model of ministry here, verses 17 to 21. Uh, notice, especially at the end of verse, verse 18, he starts to talk. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. There it is. What is Paul's model of ministry? It starts with humility. Humility. What's the famous quote attributed falsely to C.S. Lewis? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. 
Paul humbly served, worked, preached, taught, and suffered so that the church might receive the benefit of his ministry and Christ receive the glory of his ministry. In a nutshell, that is what the Bible means by humility. Paul at no point is interested in accolades. He's, no, he's never interested in uh, followers on TikTok or Twitter, and he's never interested in book sales. He is purely concerned with the building up of the church and the glory of Christ being known among the nations. He is a humble servant. Paul will write in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says essentially the same thing to the Ephesians, doesn't he? This is, after all, uh, at least canonically, the last letter to the Corinthians that we have. But his model of ministry isn't just humility, it is also compassion. Uh, notice it there in verse 19. He serves the Lord with all humility and with tears. He is a man of compassion. So whenever he was wounded by the local church, he responded with tears. When the local church was going astray, he responded with great compassion. When people were hurt, when people were wounded, when people were in need, he was a person of great compassion. No doubt, any work of ministry must have as the foundation that of humility, must have as a motivation that of compassion. You cannot be heartless and love your neighbor. Paul's humility led him to compassion. But thirdly, it, it, Paul had a model of faithfulness. Notice how his faithfulness breaks down verses 19 to 20. So he, he serves with humility and tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And we've looked at several of those in Lystra, Iconium, Derby, and so on and so forth. But how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both the Jews and the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice three aspects of his faithfulness. First, perseverance. Verse, again, verse 19, that everywhere he went, he suffered, but he persevered through it. Not only that, he saw to it that he taught them publicly and privately, consistently, the word of God. Not only that, but he was fearless in his faithfulness. And you, all you need to do is read verses 22 to 26. There he, he speaks of how he has gone from city to city, suffering. In fact, he says, this is my last time I see you. I am marching to Zion, literally, I'm marching to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit. The one that called me has commissioned me, now he has sent me to Jerusalem. And he, he says, that everywhere I go, everyone tells me I will suffer imprisonment and affliction, yet I must go. Fearlessness. Fearlessness. He isn't worried about ease. He isn't worried about comfort. He's not worried about budgets. He's not worried about anything, but faithfully fulfilling the ministry Christ has given him. Now, Luke makes each of these points clear. Would an arrogant man, driven to success in his younger days, we could say, suddenly repent of his lifestyle that would require him to abandon that promising career in order to serve and to promote the cause he once felt compelled to destroy. What, what explains that? It's illogical unless the spirit of Christ is involved. Would a fraud 
fearlessly enter city after city and proclaim Christ knowing it would lead to abuse, injustice, and violence. Again, put, put yourself in Paul's shoes. He goes from this city, something bad happens to him. He thinks, well, glad that's over with. He goes to the next city, something bad happens to him. He thinks, well, I'm glad that's over with, right? Goes to the next city, something bad happens to him. I'm starting to notice a pattern here, right? What's, what's the W quote? You know, my favorite W, fool me once, right? You know, <laughs> fool me twice, just, just don't fool me again. Well, this is like fool me 8,000 times. Every city he enters, he is being persecuted. He, he never changes strategy. I go to the Jews, they reject me. I go to the Greeks, they reject me. Christ plants a church. That's the strategy. Fearlessness as a result of faithfulness. And that faithfulness is only the result of his genuine humility and calling and his compassion for the lost. That is Paul's model of ministry he is wanting to give the local church. Secondly, notice Paul's message he is leaving behind to the local church. His message to the Ephesian bishops, if you will, is quite simple. Here it is. Fulfill your calling. Fulfill your calling. And to do that requires two things. The first, he tells the elders or the pastors or the overseers, he tells them to guard their heart. Guard their heart. Now, one of the great threats to anyone in the local church is this right here, isn't it? How many more stories do we have to have of Christians and their leaders falling? Guard your heart heart. Now, to guard one's heart, you can see that, by the way, in verse 28, so I'll just show it to you in the text. Uh, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, right? Um, So guard your heart. Pay attention to yourselves. You remember that that word, pay attention, seems to be picking up on the story of Eutychus. Because what, what is he literally saying? Stay awake. Keep watch. Pay attention. So we just got a story we saw Wednesday night about a dude falling asleep. Here he is now with the Ephesian bishop saying, yeah, don't be like Eutychus in your spiritual journey and in your ministry. Stay awake, dear church, stay awake. Now, just for the sake of simplicity and and time, two ways to, to guard your heart. First, we must develop a biblical worldview, a biblical worldview. If you forsake developing a biblical worldview, you will be led astray. Uh, so let me give you just two verses here. Colossians 3.1. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Seek these things. Seek the truth of Christ. Likewise, Romans 12. Do not, this is actually verse 2, not just 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Develop a biblical worldview. What I've found growing within American evangelicalism for 20, 30 years is pragmatism, which says it doesn't matter how much I know so long as I look the part, so long as it works. The Bible will come and say, no, 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 you must develop a biblical worldview to where you see the world through the lens of Scripture, through the lens of the gospel. Otherwise, you will not guard your heart. Secondly, we must develop demonstrative sanctification. It's a fancy way to say we must continue to progressively grow in Christ. Colossians 3, 5, uh, put to death what is earthly in you, sexual morality, purity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Put them to death. Get rid of them completely. He'll write in the the first letter to the Thessalonians, for this is the will of God. Here it is, your sanctification. That is God's will for your life. 
you, that you would be sanctified. And part of being sanctified is that you abstain from sexual morality. Each of you know how to control his own body or vessel in holiness and honor, that no one, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this manner. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Demonstrative sanctification, finally in Galatians 5.24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. By the way, uh, for those who are here this morning, Galatians 5.24 follows the fruits of the spirits. So you get the fruits of the Spirit, and it says, those who belong to Christ crucify the flesh, and they developed these. By the way, it's fruits of the Spirit, not fruits. That's something I have to remind myself. So we, so to, so we must first guard our hearts. The second thing he tells the elders of Ephesus is to guard the flock. Now remember, this word means shepherd, basically, right? Um, verse 28, he's, he's describing... Um, an overseer, an elder. He's using the various terms describing the same office, and one of those is that of a shepherd. You have to guard the flock. Now, if, if you know Psalm 23 well enough, right, you know that the shepherd has two tools. One is to defending the sheep, that is the, the, the rod, and the other is to keep the sheep close to the shepherd, that is the staff, right? If you watch enough Looney Tunes growing up, you've seen that shepherd's staff, right? Because Bugs Bunny's up there dancing on stage, he's doing a bad job, and that, and, or is it Daffy Duck, whoever, and the shepherd's staff comes out and yanks him off the stage, right? It's the shepherd's staff. That's what it's, it, it's to get the sheep closer to the shepherd. The closer you are to the shepherd, the better off you are. That's, that's the whole point of Psalm 23 there. And so here he's saying to guard the, the, the flock. Think about it. Paul has just announced... Everywhere I go, I suffer. And where I am going, I am bound to suffer even more. And he, yet he seems to suggest here, the greatest threat to the church is not what pagans say or do to it. That's not the biggest threat to the church. The, 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 why? Because the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You can kill Christians. You can burn churches to the ground. You can do whatever it is you want. You cannot destroy the church from the outside. The church will only be destroyed from the inside. That is why the New Testament spends an inordinate amount of time warning the reader to guard their, themselves and to guard the, the church from false teaching. Let me give you just a few examples, just so you know that I'm not making this up. Uh, Matthew 7, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. It's the same uh, metaphor being used here. Right? The, the, the church is made up of sheep, and you as an elder are called to shepherd that. And so you must protect them from false teaching. 2 Peter uh, 2, uh, of course, there's parallels with Jude here. False prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation is from long ago, is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Peter uses strong language, and Jude borrows, I believe Jude comes later, uh, borrows much of 2 Peter's language in his own warning against false teachers. Peter says they are coming. Jude says they are already there, and they're leading you in worship and in discipleship. So Jude uses very strong language. Same thing in 
2 Timothy 4. Remember, chapter 1 says, For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Chapter 4 says, The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. By itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, give them their own television shows, and buy their books, and they show up on Oprah, and give them tons of money that they will then bury in their church walls, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Only I can think of a modern, a few modern examples of that within the church. Colossians 2, 8, one more. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. It's interesting. He says that worldly wisdom is demonic here. Elemental principles of, of, of the world. Paul here argues that the primary means of guarding the flock is through regular and faithful exhortation and admonishing them in the gospel. Sound doctrine builds a sound church. False doctrine will destroy it overnight. Sound doctrine builds a sound church. False doctrine will destroy it. If you want to grow a church, it's pretty simple. Number one, take out the pews. Number two, put in a wrestling ring. And number three, Hand out money. People will show up. But that's not what the church is called to be. Well, let's move forward. I do want to try to get you out early this week because I failed so bad last week. What is the church's ministry as a result of this? Paul gives essentially his, his final message to them. And then the church responds to what it is that Paul has to say. And In verses 36 to 38, I think we find it there. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there were much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him. Being sorrowful most most of all because of the word he had spoken, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So he concludes his message. No one falls asleep this time. And the church responds to what it is Paul had to say. Can I highlight just just three things that the church does in response to Paul? First of all, the church prayed there in verse 36. Paul had said these things. They knelt down and prayed with them all. All the elders, with Paul, everyone. They knelt down to pray. It's so simple, isn't it? And yet the New Testament constantly emphasizes prayer, not just personally, but corporately. Paul has a lot on his plate, a lot to fear. And they pray that Paul will persevere through it all. And here's the church saying goodbye to its founder, if, if we can use that term. They have much to pray for. He has warned them of false teaching that will come in. And we get hints that false teaching did come in. You can read uh, John's letter to the Ephesian church, for example. Not only did the church pray, but the church loved Paul. And we saw that in verse 37, 38. Uh, there was much weeping. They embraced him. They kissed him. And they were sorrowful because this was the last time they would see his face. This is an expression of love. You do not do this with people you do not know and do not care about. Here they have Paul in their midst. saying, this, this is it. This is it. Saying final goodbyes. Finally, the church moved forward versus, at the end of verse 38. They accompanied him to the ship. 
knowing that Paul is going to suffer, knowing that this is it. Paul could have an easy life in Ephesus if he wanted it. But Paul must fulfill his ministry. You know what stuck out to me when I was thinking about these elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, whatever term you want to use? They accompany Paul to the ship. It, 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 it appeared to me that they do so because they know there is only one Paul. But the church doesn't need Paul to survive. There's only one Billy Graham. But the church doesn't need Billy Graham to survive. There's only one Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, Athanasius, and John Knox. But the church doesn't need them to survive. It needs Christ to survive. What the church needs is a blood gospel, a resurrected Savior, a powerful spirit, and a humbled Repentant souls. Paul gets on the boat never to return again. But the story of the Ephesian church doesn't end here. It marches forward. With the leadership of the elders, deacons, and every member of the church, they were called to move forward, reach souls, and to grow in Christ. One of the hard lessons that people have to learn, uh, especially those who are driven in their careers, is that if you were to leave your job today, your boss will replace you pretty quickly and easily. That's, that's a hard lesson to, to accept, isn't it, right? And it, it is a hard lesson. Like if, if something were to happen to me and, and God finally called me to, to be a uh, comedy writer with Babylon B, right? If they were to call me, I'm gone. I love you guys, but I'm willing to go to California to work with the, with the B, right? I say tongue-in-cheek. Um, the church would be okay. That's hard for men, particularly men, men in particular, but that's hard to, to accept, isn't it? You are replaceable at your job. <laughs> uh, let that be an encouragement to you. But it's true with the church. God doesn't need us for the church to thrive, for souls to be saved, and the world to be transformed. But he chooses to use us. With our strengths and with our weaknesses, he uses us. The question then is, what, what are we going to leave behind for those who will step in after us? I just find this passage just so fascinating. Paul's final words, and then he walks away, never to return. On my wall, or it, it, it fell, so it's not on my wall now, I have the final testimony uh, of the will and, and testament of, of one of my ancestors who was a Baptist minister. Kind of a cantankerous guy, but nevertheless, um, fascinating soul. And I, again, I, I find people's final words just just so interesting to me. It's 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 odd thing. And we have throughout history many last will and testaments from people, famous and infamous, and no one remembers them. One fascinating one is Martin Luther of the 16th century. A real uh, godfather of the Great Reformation, if you will. His last will and testament, I believe he, he was this, he essentially dictated while he was dying. I mean, that's, that's a boss move there, I guess. But there's a lot that happens there. But nevertheless, he starts it with this. I am well known in heaven, on earth, and in hell. I love that, right? I love that. If that don't get you excited, then... then Let's read it again. I am well known in heaven and on earth and in hell. Love that. 
But not only do we have his last will and test, we actually have his last final written words from his hand. It's from a scrap of paper is my understanding of it. I want to read some of it to you. No one can understand Virgil, Virgil's, one of his writings that I can't pronounce, unless he has been a shepherd for five years. No one can understand another book by Virgil unless he has been a farmer for five years. No one can understand Cicero's letters, or so I teach, unless he has been busied himself in the affairs of some prominent state for 20 years. Know that no one can have indulged in the holy writers sufficiently unless he has governed churches for a hundred years with the prophets such as Elijah and Elisha, John the Baptist, Christ, and the Apostle. Basically what he's saying is you cannot teach theology unless you have loved lay people. I think he's exactly right. The biggest error we have with theology today is they're too smart and they haven't loved people at the local church level. I think Luther's exactly right. Until you have just been in the mud with the average Christian for 20 years and cried at their loved one's grave, you can't do theology. But that's free. He ends his little scrap of people, uh, paper writing this way. It's the most memorable quote from the writing. We are beggars. This is true. I love that. We are beggars. This is true. And that is Luther's ministry in a nutshell. We are but beggars coming for a Savior. For grace and mercy and love. And he is always generous towards our requests. The work of the church isn't more complicated than that. We are beggars. This is true. I just pray as beggars. We will be known in heaven. We will be known on earth. But perhaps most importantly, we will be known in hell. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and your mercy. What a, what a text we have here. I ask that you would...